With a Center for Artistic Activism. Yeah. What did I say? Creative. Yeah. I do it too sometimes. <laughs> we do it all the time. Okay. It's good. Center for Creative Activism. No, Artistic Activism. <laughs> C-A-A. Center for Artistic Activism. I know this. Take two. All right, you have found the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions. My name is Steve Lambert. I am the co-director of the Center for Artistic Activism. And I am Steve Duncombe, and I'm the other co-director of the Center for Artistic Activism. And I am Pat Gerardo. I am the board chair of the Center for Artistic Activism. All right, and what we do here on the Pop Culture Salvage Expeditions is we dig through the, the, the most popular, the highest <laughs> grossing things that are out there and it, most of it is garbage. Yeah. And what we do is we <laughs> sort through that garbage and we try to find not things that are quality, but things within that garbage that we can use. Yep. And by <laughs> use, what we're interested in here is we're interested in what we can use for activism, what we can use to change the world. We've got a theory at the Center for Artistic Activism that within all popular culture, culture which is truly popular with people, there's something. There's something which strikes a chord with us. There's something which resonates with us. And if we can figure out what that thing is, we can actually redirect it to different uses, more creative uses and more political uses. So last time we did the uh, Transformers Age of Extinction. And the, the real okay. obvious thing would be like, oh, well, they used robots and that was popular. We should get some Transformers like robots for our protest. <laughs> Yeah, that's not what we wanted. That is not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about, like, you know, what the, at the core of Transformers Robots is a massive novel spectacle. And so having a massive scale novel spectacle at your event or as part of your action or your campaign, that would be the thing you'd want to do. It's about drilling deep down into the sort of DNA of the culture, getting past the obvious stuff on the surface and sit looking at, like, what are the deep-seated desires fears that this culture taps into and then finding those and figuring out different ways to address them yeah because what they're using it for is for selling it right yeah and so what we also want to do is not overthink it uh but actually feel it and i think that's the key for us is what is the feeling that comes out of this and how can we tap into that feeling and recreate it for the things that we want people to be connecting with great we have a special guest this week. Our special guest is Maz. Maz. Maz, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Maz Ali. I am a writer with Upworthy.com. And uh, you're, how did we find you? Can you where, where did we meet you, Maz? Uh, it's been so long, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the pleasure was all mine, and I do remember. Uh, uh, it wasn't so pleasurable. <laughs> uh, so I met the Center for Artistic Activism in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I was doing a lot of work around economic inequality, and uh, this Steve and Steve uh, helped to help to bring more creative tactics to our work. And so Maz is a, an alumni of one of our programs, which is the School for Creative Activism. And, uh, you know, one of, our, one of our top people. Our top our students. Top alumni. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Alums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we're glad to have you here. And um, so, uh, Steve. What do we have? What are we doing oh, today? You, you guys want to know what we're going to do? <laughs> yeah, we want to know what we're going to do. What are we in for? All right. Today, we are going to have dinner. Uh, it's Friday. It's Friday. So yeah. okay. we're it's, been gonna, long, it's been a long week. It's been a long week. Yeah, we <laughs> need to uh, kick back. We need to have dinner. We're going to go to TGI Fridays in Union Square. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so, so wait, why are we going <laughs> go to, to TGI, TGI Fridays? <laughs> okay. Well, one thing is that there used to be this great vegetarian restaurant on the corner of the east side of Union Square in New York City. Oh, Zen Palette. Yeah, it was really good, right? You've been there? Many times. Yeah, it's closed. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. And TGI Fridays is still there. Wow. Um, TGI Fridays has uh, franchises throughout the country and around the world. We have uh, uh, one of the people that works with us in the Center for Artistic Activism is in Scotland. He's like, oh, yeah, I know TGI Fridays. Yeah. We, have, we have that here. And I, I have a student from Argentina, and uh, she said, oh, yeah. We have these in Buenos Aires, too. 
So, and the other thing, TGI Fridays started in New York City. Did yes, you know it that? did. Yeah. Yes, you, you I knew knew that. that. Yes. TGI Fridays has 900 restaurants in over 60 countries. If you were in Egypt, you could go to TGI Fridays. If you were in El Salvador, you could go to TGI Fridays. <laughs> if you were in Kyrgyzstan, you could go to TGI Fridays. And if you were in Ukraine, you could go to a TGI Fridays. And let me ask all of us here, have any of us ever been to a TGI Fridays? Twice. Twice. In 1988, and then two years ago in an airport in Atlanta. I know that TG, I'd been to one in my hometown probably over 15 or 20 years ago. And I remember my parents, when it opened, I was like, why don't we go to that restaurant? And they said, oh, that's for like single people. Mm. <laughs> and it turns out it was set up as a way for people from around 23 to 37 to to be able to meet and get together. And so my parents were on to something. But have you ever been to a TGI Fridays, Moss? Yeah, last time was 2002 in, uh, in the delightful West Texas city of Lubbock. Uh, <laughs> that was the last time I was there. I had something deep fried, probably. Uh, and I was, I was tempted uh, recently, I believe, in Manila. To walk into one, uh, I was in the Philippines for a couple of weeks, and um, some some pancit, something a little bit more local, caught my eye. So yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have the pleasure. Well, well that's my question: um, is why does someone go to TGI Fridays in a city like New York City, where just around the corner is every restaurant you can imagine, probably cheaper, certainly better food, but why do people come to New York City? And go to TGI Fridays from New York City, go to TGI Fridays. So that's one of the things I'm really interested in finding out. I myself am a TGI Fridays virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how many locations there are in Manhattan? Yeah, I think I saw 11 in, in Manhattan, in Manhattan in- alone. Wow. Yeah. So you would think, like I would think there, there would be one or two maybe, you know, like yeah. Times Square, Union Square, but... This is a much more popular restaurant than I had ever imagined. Yeah. So, you know, talking about this is making me a little hungry. Yeah. So <laughs> Actually, I lost my appetite. This <laughs> at TGI Friday, so. <laughs> um, what we're going to do is leave here, head, head uptown a little bit, go for a walk, and uh, go to the TGI Fridays in Union Square. All right. You ready? I'm excited. All right. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Friday. Friday. Thank God. It's yeah. Friday. Yes. Cheers. Thanks, God. Oh, yeah. That is a delicious Cosmorita. I can taste all five liquors. Are you ready? Oh, I feel sick. <laughs> really? No, I don't feel sick, but I don't feel that good. Yeah, I don't know if that's the point of that food. <laughs> I'm so buzzed from my drink. Yeah, well, Maz had the Long Island iced tea. What was in that thing? Oh, I had a... Uh, a list here. Uh, five different liquors. <laughs> Spedfa vodka, Bacardi rum, Bombay gin, triple sec, some nondescript brandy, uh, a trademarked Friday's sweet and sour, a uh, splash of Pepsi, and some lemon. Uh, and I tasted every single bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're back from TGI Friday's. And... Uh, it turns out the one that we went to is not a corporate part of the corporate chain. It's owned by another company. I have a feeling they're disin- they're disinvesting from that particular location. Yeah, but my yeah. my also hunch is it's remarkably similar to every other TGI Fridays in the entire yes. world. Indeed. So, Pat, what do you think? I am actually not upset that I went there. Uh, my first time ever. Um, <laughs> It, it, uh, what a review. <laughs> you know, it was interesting to see who was in that space um, and how diverse it was. There were um, many African-American and Latino families and friends and uh, young people, middle-aged people in that space. Um, and I would not have guess that. My uh, vision of TGI Fridays has always been more white frat fraternity guys yeah, yeah or like guys coming out of work with short sleeve button down shirts 
And yes. they're like ready to cut loose. Yeah, you know exactly. So I, that's the that's the thing I noticed going in there is it's it. If we'd gone to almost every other restaurant in that area, we actually would have found a much less diverse crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what is it about TJIFs that actually made it probably the most multicultural restaurant for about ten? 15, 20 blocks around <laughs> until we hit the next TGIF Fridays. <laughs> I think people listening are, are like, don't believe us, but you have to trust us. That we, it was minority white in that restaurant. Yes. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And no majority minority. I mean, it basically right. was, this, it was New York City. Yeah. Yeah. It reflected the demographics of New York City. It certainly so, looked a lot different than the Lubbock experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And walking through, you know, there's a place along Broadway, as we walked up Broadway, called Tivana, and that's all white in there. You know, like, <laughs> not, and, owned, and owned other, by Starbucks, I believe. What's that? Tivana, owned by Starbucks. I oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Didn't Starbucks know. is also uh, remarkably diverse when you go into a Starbucks, too. Um, so, oh. what, what is it about a place like TGI Fridays? Um, which makes it this sort of mecca for multiculturalism. Because a lot of what we're trying to do in our movements, right, is mm-hmm. to break out of that ghettoization that happens in movements, is you have a white movement, a black movement, you know, a Never queer the two movement. shall meet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or they do as allies, you know, at the, in the best of circumstances, <laughs> yeah. right? But it's, you know, the, the sort of the holy grail of the truly multicultural movement is actually something that we haven't we haven't been able to find it's it's mm-hmm. lost it's missing yet TGI Fridays has found it <laughs> what what is it and what can we do to actually reproduce that is it that it's sort of outside of that realm is it is it well i, I i'm just thinking out loud but is it that is it that people are going to TGI Fridays uh, to to escape to escape a lot of those things? You know what they're going there for is to fulfill a basic human need, to nourish themselves, maybe to cut loose a little bit, uh, but but that uh, but it it's not a political space. Mm-hmm. They're just there to eat and drink. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and it is the most basic of all needs, right? You can imagine we could have a sleep store. And we could actually get really multicultural with that. <laughs> um, well, I haven't followed TGI Fridays, of course, uh, but I don't know if what we were seeing was really multicultural or white flight. So I don't know what the transition of TGI Fridays uh, is and if white people are not attracted to that space in masses mm-hmm. uh, to go in. Uh, so it's probably more you know, it could be more comfortable. Uh, you could save for other people to go into that space. Um, but I think it's actually the advertising and the having a brand uh, that matters uh, for people. And a lot of the restaurants that um, are considered more um uh, popular within uh, more elite communities are actually exclusive. Uh, and we call them popular, but they're actually exclusive. And so there's not, we're not going to see that kind of multiculturalism or people feeling as welcomed into their spaces because no one's actually advertising to bring them in. Mm-hmm. It's like those things you have to be in the know to, but nobody has to be in the know about TGI Fridays because it's basically. You know, it's advertised in television. It's mm-hmm. advertised in, in magazines and newspapers and what have you. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think that there's something about chain restaurants in, in particular that does actually have a, a, mold, a more multicultural clientele. I mean, I'm just thinking about Starbucks, for example. Is we live, I, we live, we're, we're, we're doing this right now in Greenwich Village, this, this podcast. And there's plenty of cafes in, 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 Greenwich Village. But if you go from one cafe to another cafe, they're pretty monocultural. If not monoracial, they're definitely monoclass. Mm-hmm. And you mean these places that have, you like, know, baristas and special... Single origin coffee. Exactly. And, yeah. and we've only roasted it, you know, with, like, pedal-powered roasters and things yeah. like that. And then you go into the Starbucks, and you actually see business executives sitting next to homeless people who are sitting next to white folks or black folks, Asian folks, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if there's something about the genericism 
the very things that we're like, ah, oh, there's this homogeneous culture, which is wiping out the rest of civilization. <laughs> it also means that everybody feels kind of at home. Well, and what you're saying, too, is that those other kinds of cafes are also generic. You know, the, the, there is a, a style and maybe the way that they show up are, are there slight differences in the decor. But the experience and in a way who's welcome there is pretty much the same, right? Who they're attracting. Yeah, and they're not special enough to make you feel like, oh, I need to go here versus a Starbucks, which you know is generic, but is it generic in a way that you have that comfort? And also the thing about Starbucks is that, like we were saying about TGI Fridays, is it's good enough. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not from a deli. It's not coffee from a deli. And it's better than that. It's not the greatest coffee ever. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the food at TGI Fridays was not the greatest I've ever had, <laughs> and definitely not the worst. You know, it was like the when at the point I was hungry, and yeah, this is tastes good. I've I've had worse food. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that in that sort of mid range, and Maz, you were talking about your grandmother in the Philippines. She loves going to places like oh yeah, TGI this, uh, my my fiance's grandmother yeah. loves chain restaurants because she knows what she's going to get she she knows it's going to be the same every single time uh and and like you said you know that's uh, an at-home feeling is uh, is comfort and we all want to 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 seek comfort and and that's exactly what it gives her so uh there's huge appeal in that i've been reading this book uh the righteous mind why good people are divided by politics and religion and it's this psychologists that did a bunch of tests and one of the things related to what you're talking about was that you know there's certain people that seek out novel experiences new experiences and there's other people that are more comfortable with something that's the same and if you're someone that seeks out novel experiences i want to go to a restaurant that i've never tried before this is this new cafe i want to go there um to people anyone that wouldn't want to do that it seems like you know foolish and like (laughs) You know, like my dad was one of those people that he liked to eat what he liked to eat. He didn't want to try any other kind of food that might be, have other flavors, you know? (laughs) And to me, it was like, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Um, But he, the thing to remember is that he had the same attitude about me. It's like, why, why risk it? Why are you going to all these, you're going to have bad meals. You know, you're going to have bad meals. And I do have bad meals when you take risks that way. I know. I remember when we would take uh, my mom out to a restaurant, if we did, you know, a fancy restaurant in, you know, on the Upper West Side. And, you know, when she would go back to her job, she would tell her friends, oh, yeah, they took me to this Thai place. And she wouldn't have a name for it. She wouldn't have a, you know, a remembrance of it, really. Whereas if we had gone to a Red Lobster, she would have said that. And it would have meant something to her co workers and it would have contextualized her experience whereas you know what uh just a random fancy restaurant doesn't do that for many people yeah that's an important point is it's it's a shared experience Mm -hmm. it's like the tgi fridays in union square is the same as the tgi fridays in manila which is the same as the tgi fridays in nairobi and you can actually Go from one place to another and know what you're going to find there. But also, you can talk to other people about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you have that Long Island iced tea? There's five <laughs> different alcohols. I tasted every single one. I had three of them, and everybody knows what three of them means because they've had them. So the thing about this that I I've always think is so important when trying to come up with actions and events that you want people to participate in is like letting them know what's going to happen. Right. So you're going to come at this time and you're going to do this and then this is going to happen and like kind of lay it out so that there you take away that risk of like, is this going to be a bummer experience? Am I not going to want to do this? You know, they'll feel more comfortable in that place. Yeah, I I think that we underestimate how scary politics are. I mean, we're all activists, right? We've been doing this for years. But for most people, it's not something they do all the time. I mean, if we can think back to what that first demonstration was like, you know, maybe we're people that like risk and maybe we liked the, the, the strangeness of it. But a lot of people don't. And a lot of people like, I know what I'm going to get when I get there. 
the Long Island iced tea is going to have five liquors, and it's going to taste like this, and if I drink two of them, I'll get too drunk. And so we want to think about, like, as we engage, how can we actually, as Steve said, is like, let people know what they're expecting. That doesn't mean we always have to give them what they want. Because we want to include them. Right. Yeah, we want yeah. to include them, and we want to actually say this, this is something which is going to be a little bit different, but it's also going to be familiar in this way and that way, and you can come with us into this place. Or even how are we really challenging ourselves so that what we call risk are actually our comfort spaces. And the uh, TGI Fridays of the world are actually discomfort for us. And so we don't go to those spaces. Uh, so we're reacting in the same way. Um, but I think the going to the new restaurants, going to the new countries, having, you know, the exotic experience is actually a place of comfort that we sometimes call risk-taking, but isn't actually risk-taking for us on a um, on a very uh, either emotional level or just in in how we feel about it, just blew my mind. Yeah, because I mean, <laughs> because it's like the most risky thing for us might be to actually have something that's just very welcoming. We're talking about this. Like I haven't eaten yeah. at a McDonald's in probably over fifteen years. See, I go all the time. That's my secret pleasure. <laughs> that's my time across the street. <laughs> But, like, for me, going to a McDonald's would make me way more uncomfortable than I was going to Kenya. Yeah. <laughs> I only go to McDonald's when I'm traveling overseas. That's that's how I've been. So talk to us about that. What is that about? Uh, it, the curiosity, because, you know, while McDonald's is something that's uh, very familiar to us, going to a McDonald's in Japan or going to a McDonald's in, in Italy uh, or the Philippines, it, it is still kind of a novel experience because they're all a little different. They have, they have spaghetti on the menu in, in Italy. They have, <laughs> they have fried chicken on the menu in, uh, in the Philippines. And, and beyond that, just uh, sort of taking in, taking in the experience you know, really uh, seeing what it's like for the workers. Uh, it's, it's so different. And I, I, I don't know what it's like in every, in every McDonald's uh, all over the world, but, but I have to say, like, at the risk of, of generalizing, it looks like a lot of the jobs, the McDonald's jobs in these other countries seem to be jobs with more dignity than they are here in the States. Uh, and, th- and that's something that's always really struck me. And that's why I go. It's mm-hmm. just to see what it's like. And if people want to send you emails and argue with you, is there an address? That they can- <laughs> <laughs> but but I, think, I think what Maz is saying is, is something to think about because it's about the slight variations. Like it's about that balance between the familiarity mm-hmm. and the slightness, the slight difference that's going to actually make this new and novel. And how do we actually think about that when we plan our actions, when we plan our pieces, to have that sort of sense of familiarity where people will be like, I know what this is, but also the novelty that actually allows us to expand people's horizons, including our own horizons, yet also never take them into that place or take ourselves into that place where we feel like completely adrift and we don't know these people, we don't trust these people, I don't know if I want to be here. You're at a party where you don't know anyone. Standing right. in the corner. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I noticed from, from the outside in, right? Like there's big windows and you can see what's inside, right? So like before yeah. it, there's no risk. Like about right. like, ah, I'm going to go in there and not like it, right? Right. And then it's going to be really awkward for me to kind of leave again. There's a glass, big glass windows and a glass rotating door. And you walk in and then there's the thing that is at a lot of these chain restaurants, a podium, Please wait to be seated, right? So there's a sign with instructions for you as soon as you walk in. And then there's a person that comes and greets you. And they say, how many are in your party? Would you like to wait for happy hour? Or do you want to go to the restaurant part? And we said, we want to, we don't want to wait, right? So, I mean, even they're giving you options. Do right. you want to wait or do you want to do something now? And then they take care of you. You know, like from that point on in a restaurant, you expect that kind of service and a host. And the reason that we want that and that we get upset when we don't have it or it, it comes in under the bar is because we want to be treated and led through the experience. And when we're not, we feel uncomfortable because we we're like, well, where's our food? Where's right. the menus? I wanted water, you know, and like, how do I get it? 
Well, what would a protest look like that had transparent windows, that had a menu, that had a host or hostess who would greet you and take you on an experience? I, well, really basic. Like on the flyer, a start and end time. <laughs> right, exactly. Because <laughs> what's the most frustrating thing about the restaurant, which happened tonight, which is like we wanted it to end but our waiter was so overbooked because they'd given him so many tables that we couldn't end it when we wanted to end it. And we're like, oh, man, dude, let's, let's get this going, okay? We're, we've got things <laughs> yeah. to do. We've got podcasts to make. <laughs> we're working. <laughs> well, there's also the question of abundance, right, which we saw in the menu. And the, all the choices that are available, to people so that you can enter at any point. You can enter with the, you know, with the potato skins. You can enter with, uh, you know, with the sizzling chicken. You can enter with, you know. Cosmo uh, Rita. Yeah, three pages of drinks on this menu. So I think that that kind of abundance and opportunities for um, multiple entree points is key to how we should be thinking about our movements and how to yeah, gain access. Yeah, I don't like seafood. But you know what? The steak's going to work for me, right? <laughs> and if you think about so many of our protests and so many of our sort of actions that we do, we presume the same consumer, the same restaurant uh, patron, the same mid-20s person <laughs> that is up for doing it for several hours and ready to fight, you know. Yeah, or. Exactly. <laughs> and just to think about, actually, no, people have all sorts of preferences, all places they want to go in. I mean, one of the things I think that was pretty successful about, say, Occupy Wall Street in its first days was there was lots of entry points into it, you know. Yeah. You could feel like you were part of the occupation, even if you could only go there during your lunch hour. Right. Later, it hardened into... How heavy are you? How, how many days have you stayed out here and slept and so on and so forth? But at the beginning was this sort of openness because it was exactly as mm -hmm. you said. There's like there was different options. I'm going to go help in the kitchen or I'm going to go hang out with the drummers or I'm going to go listen to the person who's, you know, doing this sort of class over there. Lots of places, lots of ways for me to engage. And if I didn't want to talk to you guys, I could watch TV. Exactly. Right? So there are like TVs everywhere. Not that that's what we need to do, right? Because the point isn't to take these concepts and translate them directly. But there were a lot of different ways to participate, engage, whatever you want to mm -hmm. say, in, in, the, in the restaurant. But at a point, do you think that, that that leads to that abundance, that all of those choices, all of those pages of food, or all of the, all of the messages that we might be hearing at the demonstrations, do you think that that sometimes leads to a little bit of paralysis? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I just want to go into a restaurant, and they're like, we make burgers here. Like Shake Shack. <laughs> if we went to Shake Shack, there's this, there's this burger, there's that burger, there's this burger, there's this hot dog, that hot dog. That's it. Oh, we got cheese fries. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have coffee? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, also Shake Shack can get away with that because they do really good burgers, right? Yeah. And so I think yeah. if you limit your choices, you have to do it really, really, really well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I went into Shake Shack and asked for a ham panini and a mango smoothie. <laughs> and the guy looked at me for a second and then just started cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing, the way that they managed that on the menu was that there were little things that were marked fave, F-A-V. Yes. That, that was... were favorites. And, and so if you were overwhelmed, which I was, which was like, <laughs> I'm just ordering favorites, right? And that's what we did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we got uh, the sizzling chicken and shrimp, and it was awesome. Well, not really, but it, but it was a favorite. Uh, the other thing is, is there was pictures. We didn't order anything that didn't have a picture. That's true. Because, you know... If you can't figure out what the description is, well, here's another sort of language we can use to describe it for you. And that's, again, something that we can think about as well, which is like, what are the ways that we describe what we're going to do with people? Right. And, you know, what sort of languages do we use? And do we actually think about, in this case, you know, it was really textual or visual, but we can think about that in all sorts of ways, like how different ways we can communicate our messages. Well, speaking of that, so when I moved from Boston to Oakland recently, uh, one of the things that I was struck by, I went to a, I went to a march in honor of uh, Eric Garner. And uh, one of the things that I was struck by was how different 
the uh, the the demonstration was, just the the action was, than what I'd grown accustomed to in Boston, which was generally a very very organized march and demonstration, lots of signs, and then maybe like some guys standing in the back of a pickup truck with megaphones or speakers, uh, you know, launching into diatribes about about the banks. Um, uh, but in Oakland, it was it was like a party. And speaking really? of like being transparent, that's what I saw looking, you know, on the outside coming into it. I saw a party. I saw people who were having fun. I saw people with conviction. They had signs, but they were smiling. They were, they were having a good time. There was music. People wanted to be there. Uh, and, and I guess you have, you know, I want to look into TGI Fridays and see a really good time. I want to see people happy with what they're getting. I want to be in TGI Fridays. Yeah, you saw the balloons, man. Uh, the, balloons. the balloons. Yeah, as soon as you walked in, there were balloons. It was a party. Yeah, the party was happening already. And they must have to replace those balloons like every couple days, you know? And when we were leaving, too, we couldn't see it because we came in when the sun was still up, but there was like disco lights flashing outside yes. yep. before you even went inside. Nice. You know, it's like, this place is a party. Well, I think that's what actually uh, big mobilizations offer, right? I think that's in our movement. Those are the spaces where, you know, uh, people come for so many different reasons, right? You come for the reunions. You come to see the folks that you only see during the big demonstrations. Uh, People have their side parties. People have their meetups uh, beforehand and after. You go off to a bar after you're done with the protests. You cut out at, you know, uh, 42nd Street and 8th Avenue instead of going all the way down to Union Square. So it's... Like those big demonstrations, I think we don't usually talk about it in the planning or even the evaluation after it, but people are entering at all different points and making their own decisions. And it's funny because I think we don't plan, we don't talk about it in our evaluations because the assumption is you're in it for the long haul Mm -hmm. and not realizing that most of us, including, I used to organize those things and I wasn't in it for the (laughs) long haul, you know, (laughs) is that, is that really to think about like, Actually, a success is entry points and exit points as opposed to the person who starts out up at Union – I mean up at uh, you know, Columbus Circle and makes it all the way down to Union Square. <laughs> the other thing we were talking about is how uh, – like no surprises, right? No surprises. That uh, they had a lunch menu, ten ninety nine for anything. You're not going to go in there and be surprised by the bill. You're not going to go in there and get food that you didn't expect – or, you know, something that's too spicy and be surprised by and be thrown off. And, like, for, for people that naturally crave novelty or like a surprise, mm-hmm. that sounds horrible. You know, it's, like, so boring. But there are times, I think, what if we're really honest, that all of us, like, do not want to be surprised. You know, like, mm-hmm. at the, if, if it's at the end of yeah. the day... And you just want, like, relaxing, whatever, you know, like, then you go to TGI Fridays and you know what you're going to get. And the, and we did see those people that were coming off work and meeting up with a spouse or something and just mm-hmm. grabbing a meal mm-hmm. and, don't, and, and want what they expect, you know. And I think that we can offer, we can try to offer the best of both worlds. Yeah, because I think that's important is that in the end, we do want to surprise people. Because we're not happy in the world that we live in right now. We want to actually show people that the, another world is possible. We want to take them out of the stories that they tell themselves over and over and again and say there's a new way to understand those old facts and build a new story. And how you do that is you surprise them. You kind of mess with the cognitive patterns. But you can't get people to that place if they can't see through the window and actually want to enter into the space where you're then going to do it. And so it is that sort of bring people in with something they know. And you can even say one of the things you're going to know is we're going to surprise you. Okay? But then and what that we surprise can do- is coming at 12.15 p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, so boom. We basically reconstitute your consciousness. But by 12.45, it will be cool. <laughs> so we're looking at a creative consistency where we kind of, you know, we're we're mixing it up with within a script, right? And yeah. it it is, you know, again, 
you know, sort of like your sitcom or your uh, serial drama Mm -hmm. where you know the formula Mm -hmm. is going to happen. But there's going to be something that happens in that episode. There has to be that you didn't see last Mm -hmm. week. Right. Exactly. I, I, I like to think of the difference between jazz and free jazz. Right. In jazz, you have like, you know, when, when I was studying this stuff, they're like, we had, this song has an A, B structure, right? So we do A is the verse, B is the chorus, A is the verse, B is the chorus, A, verse, and then you're out, right? Um, and then you can solo and you can do all different kinds of things within those chord changes. You can stray from them a little bit, but they're still the A, B structure, right? Or whatever structure you're working with. Free jazz is just whatever you want, right? Like improvise for six minutes or until you think it's done and there's times i like listening to one and there's times i cannot stand listening to the other you know <laughs> um but yeah like the w- the way that you work within a basic structure still can allow for a lot it can still allow for john coltrane so okay. how do you keep it interesting for the planner for the organizer Ooh, that's really it because yeah because we've got to make it new for us we're yes. writing the chord changes exactly yeah. i always think of it as writing rules to a game right you're the person who authors basketball and i say there's a ball this big these are the these are the ends of the goals you know like the the baskets have to be this height there's four quarters you know and then within that structure all kinds of amazing things can happen mm-hmm. yeah you could even argue that creativity happens best within constraints mm-hmm. that is as if you, if you have no constraints then there's nothing to work off of. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing to sort of push in this way and that way because just everything goes lateral. We're stuck with a menu that's got 400 choices on it, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's that, that improvisation within a structure. I mean, Charlie Parker was brilliant at this. Is he would, I think they once described it is that he would take a line out and just when you think he had lost it, he'd bring it back in. And that was that brilliance. It's like the tension the tension between that str- that that melody and then bring it out and then boom he turn it upside down and bring it back in and it's that tension that we've got to keep as much as possible and here he was the Taylor Swift of his day <laughs> <laughs> yeah haters are going to hate <laughs> i'd love to see taylor swift on so much heroin <laughs> but then what <laughs> All right. So would we recommend people go to TGI Fridays? Do they need to do this and experience it themselves? Or is listening to us talk about it enough? No, I, uh, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't go to TGI Fridays. But I don't think listening to us is enough. I think the whole yeah. point here is actually going out and doing this sort of field work yourself. Is getting out there in the world, going to places which are popular, and trying to figure out what do people find in these. And then trying to figure out... Well, how can we take some of those principles and apply it to the work that we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I would say, uh, like Miles was talking before about McDonald's when he travels, I will walk into a McDonald's. I won't eat there. But I am interested. <laughs> right? I'm interested in who goes to Paris and goes to the McDonald's. That I find is interesting. And I love uh, to see both the setup, uh, how people are working in a space, how people are uh, interacting with each other in those spaces, what's on the menu. Uh, yeah. But I don't have to partake. It. No. I would say to do that in a TGI, uh, just to go in, walk in, get the atmosphere, Use spend the some time. Yeah, mm-hmm. spend some yeah. time at the bar. You know, you're likely won't be served for the first ten minutes you sit there anyway. So, <laughs> if at all, <laughs> right. I, I, we were talking about this before, but my, I have a credit union, and all the credit uh, union ATMs in New York, like most of them, are in McDonald's. It's just mm. it's a long story about why, but they are. And so when I lived here. I was in a McDonald's once or twice a week. Didn't eat there, but like just to walk in and be like, oh, okay, this is another part of the world that I often do not need to or come across. And it was just good to walk in and see like, okay, this is happening here. Got it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm going to withdraw my money and now I'm going to go. Yeah, because I think <laughs> activists, we ghettoize ourselves. Um, we surround or white, ourselves. white tower ourselves. White tower. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> white castle. Yeah. <laughs> That's something else. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, 
it's good to break out of our, our you know, our, our safe zones. Mm-hmm. Um, even when, as, you know, as you said, Pat, our safe zones seem li- really risky. They're safe <laughs> because they're risky. And we need to see what other people are doing if we're ever going to be able to relate to people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, last time I asked you guys if you had uh, some new pop culture thing you had discovered that you wanted to share. This time I'm going to open it up a little bit. Do you guys just have anything from the last month that you are excited about that you've come across? I'll start. It's sure. the uh, next week's Empire finale. I'm yeah. all about this show. I'm also within a context of just, you know, incredible television that's on right now and the diversity of television that is on right now. And Empire is, I, it's everything to me right now. So why, like, I haven't seen it. This mm-hmm. is the first season. First season. Yeah. Okay. So I probably could within a few months. Watch them all on Netflix or Hulu. Hulu or whatever. oh, I can watch it now. Why should I start? Why should you start? Because um, I'll probably get hooked, right? So this yes. is I'm, I'm going to be committing ten hours. Why should I start? <laughs> you should start not only because it's popular; it's uh, just exploded on television. Um, you should watch it to see how far we've come as a culture for representation of African-Americans that that is outside of any script that we've seen before. This is not, you know, the uh, Sidney Poitier, Cosby, uh, better than, you know, better than angels. This is not the... Um, you know, shuck and jive, you know, feeling really uh, exploitative mm-hmm. um, uh, embarrassment of, of you know, American racist culture. Uh, this is complexity. This is a family. This is uh, over-the-top drama. This is chemistry. Um, and what we're seeing in terms of television on a lot of different shows, not just this one, but... Um, uh, sexuality of people of color on television without being um, without being exploitative, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's groundbreaking. Mm, cool. Just some reasons. Maz, you got something? Uh, wow. You know, I've never been uh, one to follow pop culture really closely. I watch more stuff like Black Mirror on oh, Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys know what it's, I'm talking well, it's about. It's popular. We know about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so you're more popular than you think. <laughs> so you're you're into Black Mirror. I like Black Mirror. Yeah. So yeah. It, for some, can you? What is it? I know what it is. It's but. it's kind of like a it's kind of like a anthology oh. format. Uh, you don't have you don't have uh, the same characters in every episode. Uh, different story every every time. Um, it's kind of like uh, the Twilight Zone, I guess. You know, it's but for it's the 21st century. Twilight Zone for the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, and it's and why would I why should I start watching it? Uh, well, I guess the reason I enjoy it is because it it really kind of stretches the boundaries of what I think is acceptable television. Uh, it's pretty perverse stuff. Um, <laughs> It's very perverse, especially episode one. I won't go into the details. Yeah, you could start with some of the later ones, in, the, <laughs> in my but opinion. A lot of futurism, a lot of, you know, what could be. And it's not stuff that's too much of a stretch of the imagination. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you can sort of, like, bear with it and, and find some of the subtle messages in there that are entirely relevant for all of our lives, uh, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think it's pretty profound. It can be. So I'm going to do a nerdier choice. Uh, This book I mentioned before, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, We got turned on to this by a colleague, and um, I'm halfway through it and just like really excited because there have been a few books like this that really influenced my thinking and how we put together the School for Creative Activism and the things that we teach and the way I approach my work that helped me understand like that oh people aren't stupid like i had thought or maybe heard in the lefty san francisco circles i was in it's they have reasons and that when there there are explanations and um so this book sort of goes into how people 
develop different senses of morality. And he talks about like politics in the United States and how people on the left have one developed sense of morality and the people on the right have a different sense of morality, which has really helped me even further de- develop a sense of empathy about like why, like one example he talks about that's very important on, on generally on the right is a sense of sacredness, right? Like that there are certain things you just shouldn't, shouldn't do. It doesn't matter if it hurts anyone or not. It's just wrong. It's just disgusting or something like that. Which to me, going, you know, to art schools and being growing up near San Francisco and that sense of what's sacred and that there are things that you can violate is developed much differently. I don't have that. I don't care about that as much. Well, the point is to actually violate everything that you can think of that might be sacred. Yeah, it can be fun, you know, or or that it's just happening so much around you. You know, like I, I worked at this motorcycle shop and every, once, a, once a year, the Folsom Street Fair set up outside. And if you don't know what the Folsom Street Fair is, just Google image search, uh, you'll see. It's pretty intense, um, but that's in a way normalized, you know? And and anyway, so understanding that 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 I w- that that was different, and that the people that don't have that aren't just foolish or uneducated. They just have a developed a different sense of morality, and that that's so something again, you know, kind of like what we're talking about here that you can work with and you can talk about, or y- it, it enables you to speak to that uh, and understand it. And so, anyway, the book is called the righteous mind by Jonathan Haidt. And I've, I've just found it really fascinating and, and enlightening. I'm going to talk about something that's not really about pop culture at all, but just something that's been happening in conversations I've had with people and trying when I don't understand something, instead of thinking, Oh man, you're wrong. <laughs> just, which I usually do <laughs> to just stop for a second and say, wow, you're thinking about this completely different than I am. And then later I can say, no, you know, really, you're wrong, right? But to, to, try to try to wrap my head around the fact that there's actually different valid ways to look at any one thing. And that one of the things that happens to us, I think, Tom, is we get stuck in this, that there's one way to look at it, and to try to stop myself and experiment. And then later I can decide I'm never going to go to TGF Fridays again. Right, but it, to at least to experiment of what it's like to sort of wrap my head around a different way of thinking about things. Yeah, the one of the things that guy talks about in this book is kind of that, right? Like when you're talking about someone else and they don't agree with you or they have a different kind of moral sense, and he said that's fine. You know, people are different, and that's what makes the world go around or whatever. But the problem happens is when we say like you think about this totally different than me, you're evil. like that's when all kinds of bad stuff happens that's true one of the best lines i heard this week um was someone who was uh talking about the pope's upcoming visit in september and admonishing uh progressives for um glomming on to the pope in in ways that um he wanted to challenge us uh that are unprincipled and saying that there is something about what the Pope is saying that we can't just cherry pick and then dismiss the rest of it that we disagree with, that we finally have a, you know, world figure who's saying some of the things that we've always wanted a world figure to say in a very, um, you know, um, uh, supportive way, but really pushing in on that. The Pope is not liberal. The Pope is not conservative. The Pope is Catholic. And what does that mean? And how are you going to engage in a deeper level besides just putting him into the spectrum? Mm-hmm. And trying to understand that there's an entirely different spectrum from which he's operating. Exactly. Right. Not ours. Well, I think that's what we try to do here at the Pop Culture Salvage Expedition. We try to actually go to places which we actually just don't understand and try to get into those places and try to figure out the logic by which they operate. And so we can figure out how we can take some of those logics to expand our way of doing what we do and perhaps to make our way of doing what we do more open, more acceptable, and perhaps like more attractive to other people as well. Yeah, so to all the folks that are listening to this, as you are planning your campaigns and your actions and your events, uh, we hope this is helpful, and we'll be back next month. 
All right. Bye. 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 Look at the fishes in the deep blue sea.